For December 26th, 2011, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 182. Holmes O Eroticism. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, California, I'm Matt Rather, wishing you Merry Christmas and wishing the panel Merry Christmas. Wow, how is that Christmas dinner, guys? Oh, wow. The children were nested all snug in their beds and visions of sugar. Wait, no dinner. Crap. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, was just, it was just greasy Chinese food for me. I don't know about you guys. <laughs> um, yeah, that's great. Well, an hour later, you want it to be Christmas again. So, uh, <laughs> no, I never, I never want that. Thing I never wish. So we're, um, uh, we're going to talk about Sherlock Holmes. Uh, another big holiday movie release. Last week was Ghost Protocol. This week is Sherlock Holmes. Maybe next week we can do. Uh, maybe next week we can do Dragon Tattoo. No, no promises there though. It depends on all of us seeing it over vacation. So, uh, panel, um, it's a holiday themed question of the week. What, uh, or I should say Christmas themed, because it's not generically holiday themed, it's, it's specifically Christmas themed. Um, if, uh, if the baby Jesus were born in uh, 2011, on December 25th, 2011, um, d- setting aside the whole mess of historical inaccuracies that, uh, that you know, go to that dating and, and um, make it, uh, you know, implausible. But if the baby, baby Jesus was born today and you followed a star to a manger, whatever the 21st century equivalent of a manger is, where uh, the... You're probably, you're probably following so Guide Star, too, right? Yeah. I believe it's a, it's a Red Roof Inn, Matt. <laughs> hmm. There's no room at the Red Roof Inn. So they, um, right, you on star, you click the on star button <laughs> and ask to find the, the Lord of Hosts, um, you know, and the uh, and the the pleasant the pleasant voice comes over on star and tells you to bring not afraid be not afraid because uh, I bring you glad tidings turned left at the next intersection um, and you come and bring a present to the Christ child it being 2011 what present do you want to bring to uh, the Christ child. Um, as a Christmas present to us all, drink, because Pete Fenzel is first. Pete, what do you think? <laughs> well, we're talking about the King of Kings here, right, Matt? Yeah, uh, the like, King of Kings. The Lord of Hosts and all that, like hosts. forever and ever. But there's really only one gift, I think, that's appropriate for really for the King of Kings, and that's mm-hmm. the HCP 1001A uh, Inada Massage Chair. By Sunogo Dreamwear Massage Chairs. It's the ultimate in luxury massage chairs. It's uh, it's over 1,200 square inches of massage coverage. Uh, allows people of all generations to join the healing effect of a massage, and it's tested for standards of durability and eff- efficacy of massage. Um, look, it's clear you've never laid eyes on anything quite like the Inada Sunogo Dreamwave. One massage session, and you will feel how completely different and luxurious the Sunogo Dreamwave is than any other massage chair ever conceived. Sogno, which means dream in Italian, culminates years of research, testing, and uncompromising attention to detail and design in robotic <laughs> massage chairs. When you sink into the Sogno Dreamwave and choose one of our carefully crafted massage sessions, you will be hugged and cradled by this exceptional premium massage chair, born of many years of collaboration between masterful Japanese engineers and Shiatsu massage experts. If you, if you buy this, using an overthinking an affiliate link, for $8,000, $8,018.98, 
sense. You will probably fund our hosting costs for an entire year, and that will be the greatest Christmas gift of all. So there you go. Pete, I feel like I feel like that answer was just a big middle finger to all to all. No, to who? I'm not giving the middle finger to anybody. My hand's too cramped up because I had insufficient massage. I don't think. I mean, if if you gave the massage chair to little little baby Emmanuel, um, he. Uh, he there, he probably doesn't have twelve hundred inches of of area, twelve square inches of area on his whole little baby body. So it would like envelop uh, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. it, it would be sudden infant baby death uh, syndrome, right? Infant baby Jesus death syndrome. You, you know, you know, you might have only twelve hundred square inches of massage coverage available for an entire crowd of people, but you know what? Everyone can get plenty, and at the end, you have five bushels left over. So that's how it works out. Um, it's the five loaves and the two massage chairs. Is that not how the story goes? <laughs> All right. Leaving the land of sacrilege, we move on. Josh McNeil. Josh McNeil, what are you going to get for our savior? So I, I've decided I'm going to get him um, a fake passport, a one-way ticket from Jerusalem uh, to anywhere else in the world, and the Blu-ray of The Passion of the Christ. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's like Jesus Ghost Protocol. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, you know, I just feel like I feel like if, you know, if you know what's coming, I, you know, he should uh, he should have a choice rather than uh, rather than what I can only imagine is among the worst forms of torture uh, known to man. I'm so that he was like Sala from the from Indiana Jones and uh, from Raiders of the Lost Ark when he meets Marcus Brody, right? Or is it Last Crusade? It might be Last Crusade where he meets Marcus Brody in the Egyptian market. And he's like, "Oh yes, yes. Oh look at these great papers. It run. Like, oh yeah, no, this is this is a very good news in the Cairo Times. Run, right? So, <laughs> out of here while you still can. You have no idea all sorts of crap that's going to befall you. Excellent, Dave Schechner. Uh, what what is your um, Hey, you're gonna have to change your religion, huh? No, no, no. You know, I'll, I'll still be a Zoroastrian. I don't see any. I will cleanse well, the baby Jesus in fire. Um, Dave can come to your birthday party and bring you a present without actually liking you. Like he's totally capable of that as a human being, as evidenced by all of the all of the presents I've ever given Pete. Exactly, um, which yeah. are very nice. That's right. I really thought, by the way, Pete, that you were going to say, what better present for the King of Kings than the King of Queens? The complete oh, series available. Um, <laughs> That's actually no, you know, buy through the uh, Amazon affiliate link, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I'm going to give the adorable baby – the whole point of the Jesus myth is not that uh, – just that he is allegedly some sort of god, but that he is allegedly some sort of god that's been recrafted in the form of man and therefore must endure a mortal life the way we do and come to know us. So I'm, I'm going to give the baby Jesus the same thing I would give uh, any infant child at this – our holiday time, uh, which is, say, some socks, some coal, and uh, little gold chocolate coins. <laughs> so there it is, folks. My youth laid bare. <laughs> you wore socks as a child? I wore coal because we couldn't afford socks. <laughs> and I liked it, damn it. Anyway. <laughs> uh, the um, uh, next one on the panel is Jordan Stokes. Oh, is it to me already? Man. Okay, so I, I, have, uh, I have two answers. One of which is that I'm going to give the baby Jesus one fish and one loaf of bread, because I figure in his hands, that's the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> and then 
<laughs> the other answer is, you know, when we did the Overthinking It gift guide for you all this year, I put in Harold McGee's on food and cooking. <laughs> so that's what I'm going to get him because, damn it, if it's good enough for our readers, it's good enough for the Lord our God. <laughs> um, what if God was one of our readers? <laughs> just slob- oh, our readers aren't slobs. No, slobs like one of our readers. Yeah. What's a stranger on the bus? Just very readers. good looking, like one of our readers. Just listen. What yeah. if God read overthinking it? <laughs> <laughs> I um. And I will get uh, I will get Jesus the Jesus phone the original iPhone from uh, 2007 uh, that uh, you know ushered Gee, in. A... <laughs> was it called the Jesus phone? Was that like, a, or did you just make that up? Yes, that was the thing that Steve Jobs is going to unveil the Jesus phone. Was oh. the you know was the thing in the tech press at the time, wasn't it? Um, no, you know what I'm going to get for our our uh, the the Deus Sabaoth, the uh, Lord of of power and might. I'm going to get him a copy of the overview uh <laughs> die hard you cheap bastard <laughs> only 199 at www.overthinkingit.com/store that's right there's a new christmas themed episode of the overview and even though the holiday uh the holiday is winding down you can still um get it and enjoy it on vacation uh and uh watch now that you're sick of your family you can watch die hard uh with our alternative commentary about die hard uh playing in the mm-hmm. background you can get that on uh, overthinkingit.com slash store. We're very excited to bring you this Christmas episode, uh, this Christmas installment in the Overview series. This week, uh, Sherlock Holmes. So, um, Josh, you're a, you're a kind of a Sherlock Holmes aficionado, aren't you? Uh, you could say that. Yeah, in that, I, in I that a... you've read a lot of the um, you've, you've, you've read the books and sort of looked at a lot of the, the versions of it over, over the years. That's true. Yep. Um, and this one, you know, I don't think really brings anything new to the table. Um, I actually quite liked the adaptation, the, the first version of uh, the, the Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes. But this one just really sort of, I felt like, dropped the ball. Uh, it, despite sort of bringing in the nemesis, which, um, you know, those of us who've, who've read about Professor Moriarty were excited about, um, I just, uh, you know, I looked at my watch three or four times during, uh, during this movie and can't right. remember ever doing so uh, while reading any of the short stories or even seeing, like, the old Basil Rathbone, um, you know, versions of the movies. And old movies can, can tend to wear on you, but, but this, was, uh, this was a real disappointment. Mm-hmm. Really, I felt, I felt the exact opposite. I thought this one was totally awesome. So we can have a nice fight about this. Yeah, be a lively discussion. I hope it's a steampunk cudgel fight because those are my favorite. Yeah. I'm actually I'm going to plan out every move in this fight very uh, in intricate detail, Stokes, and uh, yeah. thus it's I'm going to win it before you've even begun. Right, right. Yeah, it's like if she says that, then I'll make a dick joke. And if he says that, <laughs> then I'll make two dick jokes. Damn it! You already know my plan. Yeah, yeah, right. He studied your every move, Josh. Right. I well, I Josh. I had some similar feelings, despite enjoying certain things about the movie. I had some similar. I had some similar uh, feelings about it. The the uh, but but I don't know, Jordan. Do you want to do do you rebuttal more more specifically, or should we jump into talking about it and let you guys fight uh, later? Why don't you guys like bash it for a while while I uh, ignore you and plan out my remarks while you while you stir your risotto. <laughs> 
so so to speak well okay so here's here's the thing like i i said this on last week's show like i um when i got to the the final the final act of the movie when it came time to like go to the the uh what peace peace summit in switzerland or something the um i i leaned over to my girlfriend and i said oh my god is there another act in this movie it's it's a movie that kind of has one one pace it kind of goes on overdrive at the beginning with that sort of hyperkinetic uh camera moving stuff and that like uh stop go stop go stop go slow motion technique that guy Ritchie has um which i you know i think there's a place for it here i because i think it it that sort of visual technique actually kind of represents the the movement of like Sherlock Holmes's super genius mind in terms of like taking in all kinds of detail and, and, um, and it, tur- it turns the audience into a super keen observationalist, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And so we're sort of put, we're sort of put in the place. It's almost, these are almost like point of view shots and the effect on us is something akin to the effect, or at least it's like a gesture at the, you know, sort of the effect on, on him. And as we sort of add up, as we add up the elements as they're pre- presented to us slowly, we get some kind of picture of what like what this character is supposed to do very very quickly um but it 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 was relentless and and didn't seem to like ever ever take a breath which mission impossible which we talked about last week sort of did there was like there was a gesture at some kind of interiority for the characters and a little room for them to breathe in between uh in between action set pieces and i you know i thought that wasn't the case here and so i was kind of fatigued i guess uh before uh, by, by the time the final by the time the final act uh by the time the final act came around um also i didn't buy the uh i didn't buy the holmes watson bromance because there there wasn't enough chance to like to just kind of be with them and enjoy enjoy the the bromance um it it was all about you know well uh watson's getting married uh you know he's and it was all a kind of a saving silverman you know like holmes was pulling a saving silverman on him and uh, in the kind of what in the kind of antic uh frenetic um pace of that there there was no no sense that like it had once been good or it was once fun or these guys were once buds and you know i don't know can hung I, out and smoked can, some, I, interrupt some for, can I interrupt for just a second there? oh now or, you um, want to interrupt is, is is saving silverman really a movie that has enough currency that we can talk about pulling a saving Silverman. <laughs> I, I really want to get the whole panel to come I think, I mean, he, he clearly just did, and I was actually struck by how much I really want to see Arthur Conan Doyle's, like, the unsaved Silverman book. Wow, and Josh is, uh, Josh is off microphone, apparently. He's very far away! Yeah. <laughs> or he's become quite small. <laughs> <laughs> or, or like Bane, he's, he's talking through a mask. <laughs> Wait, is, um, is it possible that Josh is talking to us from the future? Okay, so maybe maybe it's not maybe it's not a Saving Silverman. Maybe it's a uh, I don't know. Maybe it's a uh, every movie about a man who got to get married and his friends who don't like the girl ever. Yeah. Um, so actually, the wi- the wife Watson's Watson's wife seemed pretty cool in this movie. I was fa- I was fatigued for it by the end. I thought there wasn't enough variety. Uh, a, a variety of pace and kind of variety of of incident to keep me uh, keep me interested. I I also have a, a, a couple of thoughts about like time period and anachronism and um, sort of international. You know what I mean? International bad men of mystery and bad guys. But uh, maybe we can save that for later. 
I, I don't know, Josh, do you want to add anything to that? Um, not really. I, th- I think you're absolutely like the, there, there were certain beats in the movie that were really exciting and engaging. Um, but overall it just sort of, yeah, I think exhaustion really it was the word. I saw it with a, a friend who had not seen the first one and it occurred to me because she, she was asking, you know, who are these characters and why are they doing what they do? Because this movie relied entirely upon you having seen the first one and caring about those and caring about the characters uh, and holding that over to the sequel. What was your friend? I mean, did your friend know about Holmes and Watson and, and Moriarty and that kind of stuff generally? Because I think you can assume a certain amount of knowledge. Or maybe, I don't know, maybe you can't, but... Uh... Well, I mean, you can assume a certain amount of knowledge that, you know, there is a Holmes and a Watson, but the relationship between the two, I mean, is... In, in the new movies, they have sort of adapted that to some extent and made it more of this, you know, bromance with the saving Silverman element. And that just, I mean, the, when you walked into this movie, they assumed you already knew that and were engaged in it um, right. from the first movie. Sure. And so if you Which hadn't seen the like, first one... Yeah. It's like Sorry, two years ago. Yeah, it was just that it was two years ago. It was not like this movie is not something that came out yesterday. This first movie was like a while back. So I'm surprised that they would expect people's memory of it to be so fresh that they won't like, uh, you know, take that step again to explain it. Well, I think I mean, in general, you could have done away with a, like most of the middle of the movie and made it sort of and, you know, had the characters have a chance to interact and talk and care about one another. For example, there's a French girl. Uh, who is titled in the movie probably French Girl, because that's about all you know about her. And she's there, and she fights a little bit, and she dresses up funny, and you don't care about her at all. And you don't really understand why they do either. Uh, it's, there's just okay. no development at all. It's an accurate depiction of France, then. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Actually, the, the, throughout, the whole thing reminded me of a Bond movie. Oh, like, wow. And not in a good way, huh? No, no. In, in sort of, I mean... Parts of it in a good way. They're like amazing action sequences and random hot women. Uh, in that way, it was like a Bond movie. And in sort of having no character have a discernible motivation, also much like a Bond movie. <laughs> okay. Jordan, so, do you, do you, do you want to break in at this point? Sure, yeah, absolutely. I, I'd like to jump on the point where, uh, I mean, rather, you said this explicitly, McNeil, you seemed to, uh, to suggest it, that you didn't buy the home's and bromance. Um, and I, I, my attitude to that is, although I get that the movie was a while ago, like, I did see that first movie, and they did the whole flirting thing, and have them try to, like, reestablish that relationship. Like, the foreplay is over, you know? Um, if you're going to do a sequel to a romantic comedy starring the, the same two characters, to just sort of start at ground zero and have them meet cute again seems a little bit forced. And I read a hostile review out there on the internet where the critics said that they lost interest at the point when they trotted out homes in bad drag. And I feel like the degree to which you're going to enjoy this movie is the degree to which you find homes coming in bad drag at that particular point kind of awesome. Like the, the fact that Watson is on his honeymoon, right? Um, I don't think this is a saving Silverman where they're just like, oh, you know, you should you should stay single and hang out with me and the boys because Holmes shows up dressed like a woman strips and then mounts Watson. 
right? And they they basically fornicate on the floor for uh, for the entire duration of that action scene. Um, <laughs> what kind of movie is this? <laughs> are, you, are you sure you got the, Are you sure you saw the right uh, film here, Jordan? <laughs> no, I absolutely. This was this am. was uh, like, Sherlock Holmes: A Game of Hose. Yeah, <laughs> like the in the um, the first movie, it was kind of like, oh, they're really sort of playing up the homoerotic tension between Sherlock Holmes and Watson a bunch. And in this movie, it's like th- there's no subtext to it. It's, it's just text. Like, I don't know. Um, I, I, I'm not entirely sure that I'm I'm comfortable with my own enjoyment of this because, like. <laughs> No, 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 no. And I'm not saying, like, because it makes me think that I might be gay, right? I don't think that this is a gay panic joke, exactly, where the joke is that they're going to look like they're homosexual and they're both uncomfortable about that, because neither one of them is uncomfortable for even half a second about it. They, they, you know, they they love the fact that they're doing this. Um, But at the same time, it's I feel like it's kind of the joke where, like, two super macho guys will like slap each other's butts in the locker room or something. And the joke is kind of, well, clearly we can't be gay because we're so macho, you know? So th- there may be a little bit of sublimated homophobia under it, but I still found it very, very funny myself. Yeah, but they're not, I mean, neither, uh, neither of them is so macho, right. Is so overtly, uh, is so overtly macho though. They're both, you know, they fight and they run and they huff and they puff and they do very butch things. It's, uh, uh, neither of them is is like a you know I don't know brawny Superman or anything like that. So it's it's uh, it's not that it's it's kind of not the same as two athletes two athletes kind of doing it. Yeah, the the the, the homoerotic subtext isn't the word, is it? It's like co-text or you know sort of intertext, <laughs> right? Like marginal commentary. <laughs> you know, in, in the reader's guide, it's the Talmud. It's it's the homoerotical Talmud to it. Of yeah, of the thing is, I mean, is very interesting. It's not well. It's sort of it. I guess it's sort of latent in the in the original Sherlock Holmes stories. When you think of, I mean, when you think of like that was the time. The time those stories were being written is the time that like Oscar Wilde was the scandal of the century. And so there there is this kind of gay panic in in Victorian Britain. Um, and so these, you know, these sort of two bachelors until Watson is married, these two bachelors living together, it's, it is kind of a, like a long time companion situation, right? Yeah. Although I feel like the, um, the whole Holmes and Watson are totally gay for each other thing comes more from the adaptations because it's my experience from reading some of those stories. Is that Watson narrator is just kind of like a fly on the wall most of the time. Um, and you don't really get a sense of him always being in the same way until you start seeing TV adaptations and movie adaptations. And then you're really kind of like thrown by the fact that there are these two guys. And Holmes, who is, of course, always not emotional, except when Watson is threatened in any adaptation you like. And then suddenly he starts to get all intense about it. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, and I guess that's what, that's that's a case of kind of playing out the implications, because if Watson was actually there to see all these things, what the, um, you know, what the, uh, uh, what the uh, relationship must have been, you know, is kind of spelled out a little more, is spelled out a little more explicitly in the, uh, uh, in the adaptations. Yeah. It's hard, to do, it's hard to do longing looks in a book. <laughs> uh, well, but, uh, there's Maybe one other... Some of our writing skills, perhaps, but... 
Yes, I, I read your paper in science, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> it's a smoldering paper in science. I think. <laughs> so, so and the uh, RNA, the RNA looks at itself with lust in its <laughs> eyes and, and begins to self-replicate. Or, it's trying to self-replicate. Oh, yeah. So seriously. <laughs> so, but if you look at the Sherlock Holmes stories and books, uh, this makes it. I haven't seen the latest movie, but I've seen a number of the adaptations, and I've read a bunch of the stories and books. Um, Sherlock Holmes as a character is presented as this sort of alien kind of spooky dude, right, who has these strange talents and skills and these problems and vices, uh, and, and it's told to you from the perspective of Watson, who is the person that you identify with, as this, right. as this really impressive dude who does this stuff that is just really amazing, but also kind of strange and foreign to you. And so the challenge is when you make Sherlock Holmes into a TV show or a movie, Sherlock Holmes becomes one of the protagonists, there isn't this sense of distance. You're not like watching him through a keyhole like you can in a book. That doesn't really work, especially if you're calling the thing Sherlock Holmes. Like if you're calling the thing Sherlock Holmes and Sherlock Holmes is kind of on the margins and isn't really in it, like that that kind of sucks for your marketing. Plus, Sherlock Holmes is kind of too cool of a character to not show him. But if you show him closer up, you want to make him more sympathetic. You want to humanize him because he's kind of inhuman in the stories. At least this is my own take. Maybe... Uh, uh, those of you who are also fans of the stories and books have a different take on it, but I always sort of see Holmes as as kind of inhuman. Um, yeah, and, and absolutely. And and I think they try to get away with that now by having um, Jude Law's character sort of look at him askance when he does stuff. But in this one, they even got rid of that piece of it. So there's, he's just wholly accepted by everyone in this movie. Um, in the first one, there was they at least sort of did the head nod toward the fact that he was this freak. Um, and was unlike everyone else in the world at the time. And I think part of it is part of this movie suffered from the fact that a guy who uses forensic evidence to solve crimes is not a superhero anymore. Right? Like, we see that every day. <laughs> um, we, like we also see it times a day. And so, what they tried to do with it was like increase the scope. And they made it this, like, world-spanning sort of – I mean, it was much more like a James Bond or a Mission Impossible where it was like, I'm going to save the world. And most of the short stories are like, I'm going to solve this one murder in a small town in England. And I think the character yeah. really suffers from that change. In yeah, scope. right. Like, I'm going go, to go to the to the country house and, you know, find out that the speckled band is a snake. Spoiler alert. And, you know, oh, hit, oh. Hit, it with, hit it with my umbrella when it comes down the bell cord, right? Like, it's – yeah, yeah it's ex- exactly – I also think that the TV shows have spoiled us to think that these crimes in general are solvable and solved, right? Like, like one of the reasons that the Sherlock Holmes stories are interesting in the first place is a lot of these cases, nobody would actually solve them, right? Um, if that were to happen, like, it's hard for the police to catch people. Um, a lot of people get away with crimes, right? Like, so, so this idea, but this idea that no matter what you do, even if you have like the perfect crime, you know, some rakish guy in his mid fifties that everyone's mom really thinks is hot is going to hunt him down. You know, like that, that might be how we feel. I feel like we're even at the point where we feel like that's reality. Right, like we feel like that's how it actually works. Whereas, like you know, right. I had my so, cell phone stolen from me in the middle of a crowded street, and like was able to point at the guys running down the street while calling the cops on my BlackBerry, and like the cops were like a couple blocks away, and they still could never catch them. You know, like it's just like yeah. it's it's hard to do these things. And and because those, those uh, we we think that 
because we think that having a crime be solved is just the normal thing. Like Sherlock Holmes can't be an impressive detective just by solving crimes. No, he needs all, to save all the he world. Can, yeah, all he can do is kind of meet expectations. But th- that's the thing, though, right? I mean, like he yeah. is—he's a forensic specialist, but it, it's more his keen power of observation and, and deductive logic, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, like it's—he's not merely yeah. solving crimes <laughs> using contemporary. Uh, contemporary techniques or even you know the sort of new modern techniques it is that you know he sees things that other people will sort of overlook uh as being you know unimportant or uninformative right yeah. uh, and, Although, in, and in that I sense mean, he's sort of a superhero right yeah and if you pay any attention to it at all of course like the sherlock holmes is not a master of logic sherlock holmes is a, ma- a master of being incredibly lucky with his guesses right so yeah like, right. You know, there's there's some white pa- Powder on your shoe, therefore, and there's like this giant chain of things, or it could right, have right, been yeah. that like you uh, you made pancakes this morning and it's flour, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, but as we know, your nephew is gluten intolerant, therefore, you must be trying to kill your nephew yeah. for his inheritance. <laughs> it was, it was, yeah. Watson QD. <laughs> there was one minute in this. Must be trying, uh, I was going to say, you must be trying to make your gluten intoler- intolerant nephew feel very ill. You know? <laughs> that's all that would happen. <laughs> I, I do want to jump in about the whole Watson Holmes relationship thing because the the immediate parallel that comes to mind is that of the sort of like I guess the original fifties and sixties convention of superheroes having young boy sidekicks, and of course the follow up kind of intimations of homosexual, homoerotic uh, overtones, subtones, what have you, uh, about the nature of those relationships. Batman and Robin, you know, Superman and I don't know Astro the dog. Did he have? Was there a Superboy? Josh, help me out here. Uh, anyway, I think Jimmy Olsen is the uh, is the is probably uh, probably uh, the goat. Yeah. And and it's sort of pointed out in um, like Cavalier and Clay. Uh, you know, the the reason why all the superheroes have a young boy sidekick is not to advance some sort of homosexual agenda on the youth of you know, the youth readership. It's because by uh, by having them have a sidekick, it sells more copies. You know, so Watson is this sort of um, in my sense. You know, reading a lot of the old original short stories and some of the novellas, on the one hand, it's written from Watson's perspective because that was sort of the convention of the time. That's the sort of gothic horror way that that novels get written. But also, it, you know, Watson is sort of a humanizing character that you associate with, right? And it put it puts you more directly in the story to be uh, an average person observing this supernatural person. I think you're, and that's that's where again where this movie sort of fails. Like, Watson is not a regular Joe in this. He's you know, uh, at one point he's pitted against someone who is explicitly labeled the greatest shot in the British Army. Right? It's, <laughs> again, again, sort of a, an issue of scope where like right, right. they've got to raise the stakes, and so then Watson has to take down the greatest shot, and and it just. Again, it sort of dehumanizes both him and Holmes by making that scale um, so grand. But here's right. why. So I want to. Th- I mean, I want to think about why that that um, scale is grand. I mean, if you think of Sherlock Holmes as being a kind of response to to social unease and uncertainty, that is to say, the uncertainty of kind of industrialization and uh, of like urban life. Um, in the latter half of the 19th century, the idea that there could be this ordering principle that that uh, found order in what seemed what seemed chaotic, you kind of have to for the contemporary audience. Uh, you kind of have to um, 
the, our anxiety is about globalization and is about kind of international relations and international issues. So you also kind of, you have to kind of, you kind of have to go to that. Whereas I think it's not, it's not quite right. I think it's, it's anachronistic uh, to, to do that for the time, not because of the, you know, steampunk technology. I just kind of accept that for being the style of the movie, but, but rather for the, the idea of, of actors playing nation nations against one another the idea you know what i mean like the idea that like there's someone playing the game of thrones uh and the idea is to sort of drive up the the you know the stock price of these military contractors or something like that we've seen we're sort of used to that a lot and we're also sort of used to uh, nefarious um you know, financial dealings, people like uh, playing the stock market or sort of manipulating uh, financial markets in a way that, you know, to their uh, to their ultimate gain. But I think these these are not plot elements that really belong to a pre World War One uh, worldview. Right. I don't know. Did that bother you in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen? Everything bothered me in League of Extraordinary. <laughs> in the <laughs> I'm not. I'm actually. I. I. I don't follow those books. So I. You know. So you have to. You have to excuse me there. I'm probably the least comics literate of the overthinking it writers. So I. I confess that to my shame. I don't. I mean. I think the the idea of this sort of, you know, Illuminati playing governments against each other is not a new one. Um, so, you know, having, um, Moriarty in that role didn't, that, that wasn't what bothered me about it. Um, it was just sort of, you know, I would much rather have seen Holmes take him on in London. I feel like Holmes and London are sort of, uh, you know, inextricably tied and taking him out, you know, putting him in France and Germany, um, and not really even doing anything with that. It was like, oh, and now we're in Germany. All right, France, Germany, and Switzerland. The idea, I mean, and the idea of like a Europe that, you know what I mean, that is a thing, that is this kind of one extremely interdependent. Uh, this kind of one extremely interdependent system uh, rather than a bunch of, of very distinct uh, nations is, is the thing that I'm pointing at. Yeah, wait, is, also, is it also Germany or, or Prussia? Is it called uh, Germany in the film? It was called Germany in the film. Uh-huh. Um, also, something you may not know if you haven't seen this movie yet is that the Airy from Game of Thrones is in Switzerland. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> so, wait, it's the same... It's the same- Set? I thought no, it was they're gym. all they're all painted. They're all painted digitally. But it's I mean, that's because of the the famous what is it called? Reichenbach Falls, right? Where where Holmes and Moriarty have their I mean, Holmes and Moriarty have to ha- have to have their like mono a mono confrontation and fall over a waterfall together. You right, yeah, it's like that has to happen. Yeah, so that's so you know the castle where the peace summit is being being uh, being talked because you know these two great powers are being pushed to the brink of war by a you know a lone nefarious professor. Um, sound familiar? Uh, is this Star Trek Six? Is that what <laughs> yeah, my, my my paper in science was that <laughs> <laughs> the the, uh, the the palace or whatever where the the summit is being held is at the top of a very very large waterfall yes and apparently completely inaccessible by road or any other means of modern uh you know transportation uh it was just it struck me as perhaps the worst place possible to hold a peace summit um, I think it's, it's an imitation of davos right like the davos economic forums that happen these days in switzerland 
right? Which are, and like also the, the things like the Aspen Ideas Festival, like that there are different meetings of transnational like power elite that happen in places like that now, right? Um, that is real. That is not. Yeah, made up. and the I mean the idea of uh, you know the idea of statesman the, uh, the idea of statesmanship. I mean, look, there were sort of diplomatic things that happened before, but you thought of it you thought of it not as one not as kind of they're all cogs in in some kind of greater machine, but you sort of think of those as. Uh, Oh, uh, you know, you think of those as being like maybe maybe it's not that every nation is its own side. Maybe there are some alliances, but they're they're at least sort of multilateral rather than you know rather than being sort of um, uh, rather than all being kind of cogs in this occult, but um, you know definitely operating uh, greater machine that is sort of masterminded, uh, you know, by a nefarious professor. So can I? Are you annoyed at this movie for being insufficiently mercantilist? <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah, absolutely. Like the, you know, where is the protectionism? You know what I mean? Where is the the? Um... <laughs> so you're saying that you're saying that that British imperialism needs to be less laissez-faire? Is that like? <laughs> I'm, I'm confused. <laughs> I don't even know what we're talking about. So here's my question, so that I can better understand what we're talking about. Can we take something like, like if you were to take Murder, She Wrote and make the same sort of changes in scope to Murder, She Wrote that this Sherlock Holmes movie makes to Sherlock Holmes, like what would Murder, She Wrote look like? Like what are the... What is- uh, Laura, Laura Croft, Tomb Raider. <laughs> <It looked> like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Just- Moonraker, so, basically. And if it were the Hardy Boys, then it would become like... The Bourne, the Bourne series. The Bourne series. It'd be, it'd, okay. it'd be, yeah, Hardy Boys Ghost Protocol. <laughs> uh, remember that discussion last week? That was a lot of fun. That was a long time ago. I remember yeah. back when Kim Jong Il was still alive. That was uh, that was a different a different world. I don't remember. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay, so so we're basically just all right. We're up in the end. Are we just going to let those in jokes stand, or should we explain that? I guess we just let them stand. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So wait, do you guys like mysteries? Like, are there other mystery franchises that you guys like that you enjoy? Um, other than Sherlock Holmes, I mean, because that because that seems to be that. Well, the you mystery- know what? It's I I actually like Sherlock Holmes mysteries. I think the BBC did a really good um, did a really good version of Sherlock Holmes, and I know I know that uh, I know that Jordan has seen it because we've talked about it, and I know that Josh has seen uh, part of it because I watched it with him. Um, the, I you know I liked I liked those and like the the. Um, the challenge in a mystery is is you control you have to control the revelation of information to the audience right because if you uh you, you want enough so that they feel like they can kind of track what the what the detective is doing but not so much that it's it's blatantly obvious um so that you know so that uh, so that like uh, you know as aristotle said right like a good conclusion should be surprising and inevitable um at the same time it's 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 not easy to 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 do this thing and like the the um the the revelation of moriarty uh in this one was um uh was really nothing much he was just sort of there whereas there was all this build up uh of him in the first movie uh and the revelation of moriarty in the the bbc series was i think sort of authentically surprising and 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 pretty cool Right? I don't know. Jordan, what do you think? Mm. Uh, I mean, I, 
I agree. There was something a little bit odd about it that uh, in the first one, he's just this presence. You know, who's he going to be? Who's he going to be? And then in the second one, Holmes already knows all about him. I did think that the BBC series as Moriarty was pretty awesome. Um, but I don't know. I mean... In the also first the, movie, the, I think I, what you said the first time we talked about it was the Orientalist, you know, Chinese circus of death was also uh, pretty amazing. What in the uh, in the BBC one? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was, that was pretty great. Uh, the, the BBC Sherlock Holmes is well worth seeing. Everybody, yeah. like, absolutely go out and watch that. So let and me ask uh, a question about Moriarty um, to you guys. Oh, certain you somewhere you want to say? I don't interrupt, but no, no, go ahead. Okay, so Moriarty, so in situations like this, I often think back to a book I think we all love, which is the Dungeons and Dragons Advanced Second Edition Supplemental Guide to Paladins. Oh, right? yeah, it's a classic. <laughs> in this book, uh, one, they talk about different variations on the Paladin class, and you can learn how to play, you know, Chevaliers or whatever, or Caval- you know, whatever it is. You can play, like, you know, uh, freelancers. You can play all these different kinds of Paladins. And there's a whole section on, a uh, brief section, but a section on Black Knights. Right where they say, you know, there is a temptation to make evil paladins that have all the same powers as good paladins, but this uh, undermines the story of the paladin and what it stands for. The whole allure of the paladin is built around this idea of there being this sort of singular, special, super motivated character who is pit against forces that are more numerous and and sort of uh, and of a lower of a lower quality than himself. Um, and he doesn't say herself. So it's like, so it's actually bad for your campaign as a dungeon master to have a bunch of black knights running around, to have a bunch of evil paladins, uh, because it, it cheapens and it, it not even cheapens, but it flattens out and it makes less the takes away the story from the good paladins. So one of the issues with Holmes and Moriarty um, is like how similar are they, are they similar are they supposed to be to each other, and how different are they supposed to be from each other? Um, are they really reflections of one another? Is is Moriarty an evil Sherlock Holmes, um, or is there an asymmetry in what they're trying to accomplish? Because certainly they're great adversaries, but even thinking back to the books, it's hard to nail down exactly what it is about Moriarty that makes him worthwhile. At least to the extent, like he's this this presence that looms over things, right, and isn't really directly involved in them. Um, but to put him in a movie as a character, or to put him in a miniseries as a character, it seems to me you have to make a lot of decisions about how similar or different from Sherlock Holmes he's going to be. So, I would ask that question about the BBC series, which I have not seen, and about this latest movie, which I have not seen, both of which portray Moriarty. Is he similar to Sherlock Holmes? Is he different from Sherlock Holmes? Like, where are the points of difference, and where's the asymmetry if it exists? Yeah, so there's some interesting things to say about that. Um, in the BBC series, they make a decision very early on, which seems very curious at the time, to play up the fact that Holmes is a consulting detective. That, like, in, in, in the BBC series, you cannot hire Sherlock Holmes if you're a private citizen, I don't think. He, like, shows up where the police are investigating crimes and offers his services to the police, saying, like, I'll come and help you do your jobs because you're not good enough at it. Um, and this seems really, really weird until at the end they set up Moriarty as a consulting criminal who will like go into, you know, gangs or uh, mafia organizations or embezzling businessmen or whoever and say like, look, let me help you run your crime better. So they're like mirror images of, of each other in that sense. It's kind of a neat, neat shtick. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the movie, they, they're different in that like, Moriarty has the same power that Holmes has to, like, plan out fight scenes in advance. And I, mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, unfortunately, McNeil has left the podcast, rather. Did you think that was cool, at least? 
the, uh, planning out the planning out the fight scenes in advance. Where, where, like, where they're, you know, the Holmes' shtick where he's like, okay, first I'm going to punch him here, then I'm going to punch him there. And when Holmes and Moriarty have their fight, like, Holmes does that, and then Moriarty comes in, and Moriarty yeah. gets the voiceover. And he's well, like, right, almost as, yeah, almost as if they can, can see each other. And I mean, the, the big metaphor is sort of chess, right? Like, because they're playing a game of chess at the time or, or immediately before, and like seeing your opponents move, thinking like your. Uh, thinking like your opponent, it's always been kind of like, uh, kind of uh, I, to a greater or lesser extent manifest, but always kind of present in the Sherlock Holmes character that he, or you know, any kind of hero, uh, hero cop character that they can think like the you know the underworld uh, criminals. So I, you know, I think that that what's done at that moment is actually is actually pretty neat in terms of the kind of parry and, and sort of counter thrusts of almost here, almost as though they can hear each other's thoughts they're so good at kind of entering the minds of of others right yeah and i thought that was like maybe one of the best scenes in the movie in terms of moriarty's like ability as a criminal there's something a little bit um poorly thought out about it because there's not really a way well hang on let me i want to say exactly the opposite thing being an actor Actual criminal genius probably is very much about noticing things other people don't notice. So just like Holmes notices like the white powder in somebody's shoe, the criminal genius notices like, like, hey, if I, you know, if I invest this money here and then manipulate this thing here, I will become a millionaire and nobody will notice. And if anybody else had been aware of this, then they would have either fixed the loophole or done it all already, but I'm the only one who noticed it, therefore I can do this. That's not really Moriarty's shtick. Like, none of the things that he's doing are um, things that depend on observation. Rather, ability as a criminal seems to be knows that Holmes is after him and is willing to do something like sprinkle a little bit of white powder on the henchman's shoe just in order to throw Holmes off. Um, Which is, it makes him a good fit for Holmes. They like you know clearly he he can meet Holmes's strength with his own strength, but it's kind of a stupid thing to do because if you don't have somebody like Holmes after you, then like what was the point? Right, right, right. That's interesting. So so he so he's like he's like a count. He's not a counter Holmes. He's an anti Holmes. Like it's yeah, like he's yeah. there to stop Sherlock Holmes. He's not there to sort of be a be a, a counterpoint to him. Like to be the opposite of him. Like the, the evil Holmes. He just happens to know. Yeah, that, he's, he's is like that, the Superman. He's like the Superman villain whose superpower is that he's made out of kryptonite, which is great if you're fighting Superman, but not in any other circumstance. Right, right, right. So they never there's, – there's no like – I mean is that, is that factor in the movie? Is like Watson actually able to do things that Sherlock Holmes can't do because Moriarty is, has Sherlock Holmes' number but doesn't have Watson's? Or is that just – No, they just they – didn't, they didn't like follow it through that much. They just needed to have somebody uh, – because you're so with Holmes and Watson the whole time. So the way that this actually plans, like plays out in the movie is Holmes seems like he's solving the whole crime and everything, and then they get to the end and like, oh, Moriarty anticipated that you would get exactly this far, and he leaves a, he leaves a chess piece um, for Holmes to find, being like, ha-ha, I fooled you. Um, and as you're watching it, that's perfectly effective. But if you think about what that means for Moriarty to have done this, to have like laid these plans and these trails to bring Holmes to this exact place where he's left the chess piece, and then Moriarty is like sitting across the room so we can watch him find the chess piece. Um, I mean, it makes it. I don't know. It's it's a whole separate hidden homoerotic subtext, I suppose. <laughs> Below the the giant glaring Holmes Watson one, there's a Holmes Moriarty <laughs> one. 
I would have. I would be. That would be really difficult for me. I would be so anxious if I like left a chess piece in a room with the idea that this guy was going to find it in like a week and a half or like two weeks. Yeah. I'd like keep walking into the room and like moving it over a little bit or being like, maybe I should put it in a different room. Like, or should I? Is it be on the bookshelf? Should it be on the table? And there'd be times. There'd be days where I just would take the. the I put away the chess piece. I'd be like, this is stupid. He's never going to find it. Right, but then I'd be like, "Oh, but it's my plan, and I'm a genius." All right, I'll put the chess piece back on the table, and it would just be really anxiety provoking. Like, imagine a movie that takes place entirely in the time between when Moriarty sets all his traps and when Sherlock Holmes actually finds the chess piece. That is like about what happens in that room. So it's um, like the, the, the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead of the Sherlock Holmes sequel. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah, which is actually that's a uh, it's called Inspector Lestrade is that series. <laughs> <laughs> is there like a there's no like beat cop right there's no like uh we can't have some sort of amazing could we have some sort of like amazing race where like it's like sherlock holmes and vic Mackey and like the ncis crew like all trying to solve the same crime at the same time using their own methods and we see who wins um and it's like different super geniuses and it's like sherlock holmes has a lot of problems with moriarty but like vic Mackey has none because he just like beats up one of moriarty's henchmen and makes him tell him where he is <laughs> and that's and that's it um well, i guess sherlock I mean, holmes probably does kind that of- too yeah, that's kind of that's kind of his mo in these, these movies. You know, they used yeah. to do that sometimes back when detective fiction was maybe more of a big deal than it is these days. They would uh, have detective story magazines would have challenge issues where, like, they would issue a crime, like a locked room mystery, uh, send the like a paragraph description to five different writers and have them bring in their hero to like solve that crime using their methods. Oh, that's awesome! They should do that. They should do stuff like that on TV with these. Uh, it's kind of great, right? Yeah, I yeah. mean, I, I, isn't there actually? There's an Agatha Christie story, right, where all of her detectives attend a dinner party together, and there's a murder, and she basically. No, I think you're thinking. I think you're thinking of a piece of erotic slash fiction. <laughs> I mean, as as unusual as it is for me to say this, no, no, not this time. <laughs> uh, but now I am. It's like saying, first, don't think about an elephant. <laughs> Smothering another elephant with a ball gag. You know, <laughs> you know what's the first thing that pops into your mind? Anyway. That was uh, Agatha Christie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's my safe word, by the way. <laughs> that was a very disappointing episode of Doctor Who, of the David Tennant Doctor Who, by the way, with the Agatha yeah. Christie. So, yeah, with, because with, it's with like Doctor Who, yeah, he tries to use like Agatha Christie, Agatha, Arbiter Christie. Now I'm banging <laughs> the Dark Knight prologue. We're running Agatha Christie. I'm trying to use her methods to solve a crime. Um, <laughs> are you Bane? You're from over here. Okay, Bane. I'll be over here. He's got in a loop. Stop him. <laughs> sorry. sorry Someone sorry. save Pete. But the point was if you're doing a Doctor Who episode with Agatha, with Christie, with Mary Higgins Clark, Clark. <laughs> <laughs> doctor who, doctor, the doctor's methods, and Mary Higgins Clark using Mary Higgins Clark's methods, and then you, rather than having do, the doctor pretend to be the Hardy Boys. Hey I'm Pete, you were, you were hitting that eggnog a little too hard at the Christmas dinner you just came from. <laughs> I, I felt so. like the, I felt like the problem with that uh, that episode is that. You know, Agatha Christie herself does not solve crimes. Having Doctor Who hang out with Hercule Poirot would be awesome, but having him hang out with Agatha Christie, like her method is to write a mystery novel and sell lots of copies of it. Yeah. <laughs> that it's would like be kind of funny if it's like, yeah, it's like Rambo and like uh, Tom Clancy, like spend some time together. And it's like 
they're just in the den watching television. That's actually Jordan. What you propose is really interesting because that has to do with that that kind of like levels of narrative reality thing that I that I wrote about a little bit in this article and overthinking it that I wrote last week, where it's like actually uh, Doctor Who and Hercule Poirot have equal status in that they're both fictional characters, but it's it's probably a rule of the Doctor Who Who universe is that this is a. Uh, the Doctor Who universe has Hercule Poirot. The Hooniverse, if you yes. will, has uh, Hercule Poirot in it as a fictional character. You know what I mean? They don't well, have they like they don't yeah. have equal status uh, in the Hooniverse. So, so wait, now, where, where would uh, where would uh, uh, Jessica Fletcher fall into this? The the heroine from Murder She Wrote, who is a writer who also solves crimes. Whoa. Inception. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I just blow your mind. No. <laughs> So now it's the doctor. It's not Doctor Who is not a character. The doctor is the character. Just before we oh, get sorry, up, yeah, yeah, uh, you're right. Uh, sorry, sorry. So if there oh, were, I'm gonna, get, I'm gonna get a hate mail where the doctor met Jessica Fletcher. So Jessica Fletcher is writing a mystery novel about a mystery, but she also finds herself present in the mystery where it's happening. And this uh-huh. is something that doctor, the doctor knows about and goes back to the time when the mystery is happening based on watching the episode of Murder, She Wrote, right? And it's like, okay, I'm going to watch the television, and I'm going to – so he probably just reverse the polarity, and then it would all be better, right? They'd just be like, yes, it's the Quaxons. Like, we need to flagellate the Quaxons, and then it's going to be <laughs> – It's like the answer to this is to wrap a dog in aluminum foil. <laughs> that is a Star Trek solution to a Hercule Poirot problem. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But I think there is a certain degree to which the operations of the geopolitics of the world, that what this reminds me of is like actually trying to do things in the world in real life, where you can go down this rabbit <laughs> what this reminds me of is the sequence of events that befalls me every day of my life. Like, like to get from fiction to reality, we have to go through this crazy rabbit hole where it's like if you're actually – say that you, you leave the office or you leave your, uh, your house or you leave like the pet store one day, wherever you happen to be before these events transpire, and you're like, I'm going to do some good. And you go out into the world with the intention of doing some good. Like, considering the implications of all of your actions on all of the people who might potentially be affected by them, is this huge circle of, like, considerations and reconsiderations where you can't ever know for certain what the actual effect of your actions are going to be. So, but in mystery novels, I guess, um, there is a clear cause and effect. That's part of what makes them comforting. Um, but I guess once you get into these you know, feedback loops and flashbacks and meta narratives, and, and, and what this recalls to me is the situation of Davos Man, right? This like guy in Switzerland who's trying to manipulate the whole world by like say tweaking the price of tuna or something, right? Like like the idea that I'm going to have some nefarious plot to control the world. Like these plots, when they're especially when they're really really complicated, um, they I have problems with them because they they would crash and burn given all of the unpredictable effects that the things that you do might have right like right. a sherlock holmes quote-unquote deduction that they, they involve a lot of um they involve a lot of either lucky guesses or a lot of like you know statistical assumptions uh that may or may not uh be true in in point of fact right 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 so is it i do your- think yeah, go ahead I do think that this movie kind of did a nice job with that because Moriarty's plot is to get control of a bunch of like munitions and cotton companies and then start World War One. Right. And Holmes effectively, spoiler alert, stops them from starting World War One right then. 
is like, hi, I beat you. And Morty already says, like, actually, no, like World War One is inevitable, given the current international system. You know, it would have been convenient for me to start it tomorrow. But if it starts, you know, next month or next year, I will still own these munitions companies. Like my plan is not actually what's causing this. Wow. So, I'm so, just so, along for the ride. So Moriarty is basically just Sir Basil Zaharoff, like the, the actual yeah. mad genius who did this for the actual World War One. Basically, yeah. Who is That's this? Awesome. Tell the story. Tell the story. Sir, so, no, no, it, it's, there's not much of a story. Sir Basil Zaharoff was um, a munitions dealer that uh, supplied weapons to all sides during World War One without, without their knowledge that he was selling to their adversaries as well. So you'd have, you know, Germans and, and Frenchmen shooting at each other with rifles that had been bought from the same supplier. Mm-hmm. So, he'd be, you know, no matter, no matter uh, I guess no matter who loses, he wins. <laughs> now, <laughs> do you know about him because of your Turkish connections? Because he was born in, in Turkey. I'm looking him up right now. Well, he was born in the Ottoman Empire, and then he was a French citizen for much of his life, right? I, I can't um, say anything about that. Okay, know. okay. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> I have no I, knowledge. I know, I know about him because I took courses in history while in college, Pete. That's how. Well, I, you know, it is not unreasonable <laughs> for me to think that your immersion in uh-huh, the... Uh-huh. All Turkish people know each other. Just go ahead and say it. I'm just saying that just because he was born in Turkey 160 years ago doesn't mean your wife isn't personal friends with him. (laughs) (laughs) Can we can we close on can we close on an issue about about Sherlock Holmes because this is like one of the most popular literary characters you know in in recent history or I guess maybe in the history of literature Uh, so you know so popular that Arthur Conan Doyle got so sick of the constant clamor for him that he he killed him off uh in only to bring him back uh you know years later and create a a uh what an excuse where he and on the on the third day sherlock holmes arose from his grave (laughs) and was adored by the answer gone right and we all we all brought him a shiatsu massage chair (laughs) if he sees sees his shadow but uh yeah right like uh apparently and this is there's actually i mean there's a there's a kind of a pleasantly steampunk solution to that to that problem there's a steampunk solution to a conan doyle problem in uh in that which is you know how does how does robert downey jr get out of the falls um so okay, right? Like, uh, what 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 is it? Uh, what does this character want? One of the things about the um, the BBC one that I think is is uh, so interesting is that it like it sort of takes a look at the the home psychology. Um, if you really are that brilliant, you must be terribly bored by by almost everything, and that must be. Uh, unbearable. I mean, that, that's an unbearable condition to live your life under. And so, you, what you're looking for is kind of what you're looking for is distraction, right? And you sort of feel bad about uh, sort of feel bad about bad things when they happen to people. But but that's kind of not the game that you're playing. Uh, it, it's about uh, you know you're kind of playing a, a, diff- a bigger game than that, I suppose. Where the goal is is to uh, sort of to amuse yourself. Uh, the Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes, those strike me as being being sort of fundamentally different right yeah i mean it's also if you go back to the literary sherlock holmes when he's not solving crimes he does the cocaine uh in order to stave off the boredom which which leads me to imagine that like old dirty bastard had he applied his talents to solving crimes would have been very good at it (laughs) (laughs) did he not jordan oh baby i like deductive oh baby i like (laughs) <laughs> oh, baby, I like it. deductive. 
<laughs> but what what do you think the Robert Downey Jr. character wants? Like other than Jude Watson. Law? Yeah, that, yeah. that's exa- that's what I was going to say too. Yeah, and, right. And that's that's a different. That's a very different sort of thing. Um, that's a very different sort of thing. It's 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 one thing to say that you know this person is a is a companion on my uh, on my journey, and I I have some affection, I guess, sort of friendly affection or at least toleration for him. And it's an it's another thing to say that like really. Uh, my life is given meaning by this, uh, you know, by this hetero life mate and, you know, would be biographer uh, of me. Yeah, I also think the other thing that he seems to want, although they played this pretty subtle, is he wants better at this than his brother is. And he kind of knows he isn't. And it tears him up inside. I, li- I like the oh. scene. I mean, like the. the right, did- Mycroft shows up in this. Yeah, Stephen oh, yeah. Fry shows oh, up. Oh no as, way! Yeah, oh, that's great. As, as Mycroft, and it's it's pretty cool. They have a de- they have a deduce off where they <laughs> where they just <laughs> where they just you know McNeil and I used to have those in college. I think <laughs> they just <laughs> we'd, we'd buy a Stromboli. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's where I knew where that was going. <laughs> Both from experience and from experience. <laughs> they, uh, yeah, and so they each they they drop the deduce. On one another, <laughs> uh, and make you know in- increasingly sort of improbable and harder to prove claims about uh, uh, you know about one one another, and like it's it's the it's a. Uh, the Guy Ritchie style where like, you, you know, you zoom in on the, the, um, the particular elements that they're seeing, but the Stephen Fry, uh, uh, Robert Downey Jr. You know, deduce off is done without any of that. They just, it's this kind of rapid banter of, uh, making claims about one another. <laughs> well, that's cool. <laughs> that's <Yes>. nice. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let me say let me say one other thing I liked about this movie. Um, McNeil was complaining about the fact that Watson was no longer human, but I found it actually kind of interesting that Watson in this one seems to have picked up some of Holmes's shtick, um, and like he, he's not as good at it, but he can kind of hang. And the climactic sort of scene is he has to do do it on his own while Holmes is out of the room, and he successfully does it, which I. But to me, that was actually kind of a wonderful arc for Watson. And, like, what is he going to do now that Holmes is ostensibly dead? Like, is he going to set up himself as a detective? Seems like sort of a wonderful direction to take that character that, uh, as far as I know, Conan Doyle never actually did. Right, yeah, Watson was always sort of, he never got very good at the deduction. And and it was like, uh, it was sort of like being able to dunk a basketball or something like that. Like, you, you see it, you understand how it's done, you understand the circumstances under which it might be appropriate to dunk a basketball, and yet you still can't, you know, Jude Law can't jump. <laughs> but, uh, but, in this, but, but in this one, Jude Law can, in fact, jump. Right. So, <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> All right. Well, maybe we can uh, maybe we can leave our conversation there. If you want to join the discussion, you can email podcast at overthinkingit dot com or call two zero three two eight five six four zero one or leave a comment on the show notes of this episode. Uh, happy holidays! We'll be back uh, in the new year. We'd love it if you picked up an overview, uh, especially the new Die Hard one. Uh, while it's still the holiday season, it's still very, 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 very topical. Uh, the podcast will be back in twenty twelve. Until then, you can uh, visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny 
We're all a little baffled here. <laughs> like all well, the people out there listening to the podcast who do know that joke will find it hilarious that I just dropped the punchline without any of the setup. Merry <laughs> 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 Christmas to them. <laughs> yeah, happy Hanukkah, everybody. <laughs> I can't believe we made it through the whole podcast without a discussion of Star Trek The Next Generation. Oh, God damn it. We missed quota. <laughs> now we're going to deliver all these SNG references to all the good boys and girls across America this evening. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, it was the night before Christmas, and all through the house, only data was stirring, very, very fast. <laughs> <laughs> he was stirring so his risotto. So is that beat poetry? Should I snap now? 